Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution. Episode 13, Gandhi in London. Welcome back. In our last episode, we talked about the Nehru Report, perhaps the first comprehensive attempt by Indians to create an indigenous constitution. We also talked about the communal animosity that plagued the drafting of the report and how the report was a direct response to the disaster Simon Commission. When we parted last time, we also looked at how the eventual outputs of the Simon Commission was largely dismissed in both India and London. India was outraged at a report on its future written by a commission without a single Indian. While in London, there was little enthusiasm to accept a report that was so deeply hated back in the colony. So what happened next? In my view, this is the period between the two world wars when the future of the Indian colony appears to have been most uncertain. Not just to the British, but also to the Indians themselves. Nobody, not even Gandhi, appears to be sure of the next step in the saga of India's self-determination. Before the First World War, the British strategy was simple. Maintain the colony and relinquish as little power as possible to a small, educated Indian elite. After the Second World War, the idea of Indian independence faced little opposition. It was simply a matter of figuring out the modalities of transferring power. In between the two wars, however, things were very murky indeed. In Britain, a Labour government was formed for the first time. And as far as Indian independence was concerned, the Labour Party seemed to occupy a space somewhere between the Liberals and the Conservatives. The Liberals, as we have seen, in general wanted to cede as much power as possible as quickly as possible to the Indians. The Conservatives, on the other hand, were upset by the concessions made in the Government of India Act of 1919 and were actually talking of taking a step back and withdrawing some of them, giving Indians an even further reduced role in government. Ramsay MacDonald's post-World War I Labour government seemed unsure of what to do next. In India, meanwhile, Gandhi's star is rising. There is broad unity against British rule, and most alarmingly for the British, the freedom movement is increasingly turning to civil disobedience and other more muscular forms of protest. But just take a step back and you'd see that there was tremendous fragmentation in this freedom movement. And the largest source of this fragmentation, obviously, being religious animosity and religious distrust. However, the one thing everyone agreed on was that something had to be done. In 1919, the British had promised a review of Indian government in 10 years' time. The Simon Commission was part of this review but had floundered. So now, a new attempt at legislative review was overdue. The Indians, meanwhile, sensed that the longer the struggle carried on, the more the British would try to play community against community and weaken the movement itself. Play the Hindu-Muslim schism smartly and the British could sustainably weaken the Indian freedom struggle and perhaps indefinitely prolong the Raj. In 1925, the Secretary of State for India, Lord Birkenhead, wrote in a letter, open quotes, I have always placed my highest and most permanent hopes upon the eternity of the communal situation. The greater the political progress made by the Hindus, the greater in my judgment will the Muslim distrust and antagonism become, close quotes. So both sides desperately wanted to see action, even though their motives were, so to speak, in diametrically opposite directions. Which is how Lord Irwin, the Viceroy, came up with the idea of a roundtable conference in London. The overall idea, from the British perspective, was simple. 
create a talk shop that gave Indians the illusion of progress, but actually achieved as little as possible. Irwin felt that many Indian leaders did not have the firmness of conviction that their rhetoric seemed to indicate. He wrote in a letter in 1926, open quotes, In many ways, Indian politicians remind me very much of the mentality of our labour friends at home. The heart mesmerises the head and words reign supreme. But I am told, on all hands, that they are singularly responsible to ordinary courtesy and that, as one would expect, sentiment looms very large. Close quotes. In other words, just engage these Indian leaders with words and don't worry too much about actual meaningful action. Which sounds simple enough, but the British, more so the hawks in London than Lord Irwin himself, I feel, wanted to achieve more than a holding action. They saw these roundtable conferences as kind of a multi-warhead weapon against Indian nationalism. It would do many things for them. So let me list a few of their objectives. First of all, by hosting it in London, it would give the impression of being a serious next step and hopefully erase some of the lingering bad taste around the Simon Commission. Look, the British seem to be saying, last time we sent British chaps to India, this time we fly Indians to London. And which Indian doesn't like an off-site project once in a while? Secondly, the British hoped that by bringing together so many groups of Indians in one place, enough chaos would be generated that would support a point many British conservatives had been making for a long time, that Indians were simply in no position to rule themselves. They also hoped, fervently, especially the conservatives, to deepen the animosity between Muslims and Hindus over the question of communal electorates. Point number three, the British also wanted to use the conference to secretly prop up the one group within the freedom movement they actually seemed to like a little bit, the moderates. And we'll come back to this point in a little bit, as this relationship between the moderates and the British provide important context to British policy of this time. Point four, the conference was also supposed to function as something of a summer internship for MBA students. The British would use it to keep the Indians busy on large, complicated projects with little real use. And in the case of the first roundtable conference, this would be a new federal structure for India, a big, complicated, essentially useless project. And point number five, most of all, the conference was supposed to be an opportunity to make vague promises to the Indians without any clear deliverables or deadlines. Irwin's policy was, use big words, impress the Indians, target their sentiments, but commit to nothing. This is best shown in words Irwin drafted in a letter to Indian leadership. Open quotes, India shall, through the realization of full responsible government, be enabled to obtain in due season recognition as a self-governing dominion. What smooth non-committal verbiage. And by and large, things turned out exactly as the British planned. The first conference, held between November 1930 and January 1931, was largely pointless. Proceedings in London opened with a speech by the King. More than once, the Sovereign has summoned historic assemblies on the soil of India, the King said at the opening, but never before have British and Indian statesmen and rulers of Indian states met, as you now meet, in one place and around one table to discuss the future system of government for India and seek agreement for the guidance of my Parliament as to the foundations upon which it must stand. After this, extensive debates took place on the federal structure of a future India, especially on how to integrate the princely states. But all this appears to have been mostly a smokescreen to give the illusion of progress. The Congress, of course, boycotted the conference, 
In any case, many leaders back home were in prison for participating in the civil disobedience movement. As I said before, one of the British objectives of the conference was to prop up the moderate factions of the Congress and other freedom movements. Let me explain that angle just a little bit here. By this point in Indian history, most liberal and moderate Indian leaders were beginning to face a backlash from the Indian public. Many felt that these leaders, names such as Tej Bahadur Sapru, were too British to deliver any kind of reform or self-government. This view, mind you, was not without merit. Some of these moderates seemed happy to leak information to the British about their more muscular compatriots. Pandit Nehru, contrary to current opinion, was at that time seen as being one of the more extreme agitators, along with Subhash Chandra Bose and many others. The British feared that if the moderate Indians fell out of favour, the freedom movement would fall wholly into the hands of the agitators and aggressive leaders, and then things would get even worse. So it was important to look as if the moderates were winning concessions from the British. This would then prolong their careers back in India and conveniently keep them close to both the Indian masses and to British administrators. Now, the temptation here is to think of these moderates as traitors of some kind. This also is not entirely justified. Many of them did genuinely believe in a gradual, peaceful pace of reform and in cordial ties with the British. Perhaps some of them also shared the British notion that India was not yet ready to govern herself. The first conference, uh, one that was dominated by the moderates, thus ended without any great consequence. One side note to the proceedings is that B.R. Ambedkar, who represented the untouchables, demanded a separate electorate for them. By this point, the British realised a conference, even a sham conference, was pointless without Congress involvement. So for the second roundtable conferences, held between September 31 and December 1931, they decided to invite the biggest brand in the freedom movement, Mahatma Gandhi. There was just one problem. The civil disobedience movement was still afoot, many Congress leaders were in prison, and there was substantial animosity between the Congress and the British. So Viceroy Irwin kicked off a period of reconciliation by releasing many Congress leaders and then arranging for eight meetings with Mahatma Gandhi. Conservatives in Britain hated this supplication before this half-naked fakir, but ultimately, the discussions would go very much in Irwin's favour. In the beginning, Gandhi placed several prerequisites for a calling off of the civil disobedience movement, but eventually settled for just a subset of them. In fact, the Gandhi-Irwin pact made many Indians very unhappy. They felt that Gandhi had made way too many concessions. Gandhi placated these critics by saying that when he spoke to the British and when he went to London, he would demand for nothing less than complete independence. So now that a bridge had been built with the Congress, in the winter of 1931, Gandhi was invited to London as the sole representative of the Congress party at the second roundtable conferences. It would prove to be an endlessly frustrating session of meetings for Gandhi. These meetings pitted Gandhi first against the Muslims, then the untouchables, and finally against almost every other Indian present. First of all, Gandhi refused to give the Muslims a separate electorate. This upset the Muslims. Next, he not only refused Ambedkar's request for a separate untouchable electorate, but also insisted that the depressed classes were a part of Hinduism itself and not a legitimate minority. This obviously made Ambedkar and his team very upset. In the end, the second roundtable conferences also ended inconclusively, but particularly so for Gandhi. And then suddenly, a few months later, in March 1932, the British government announced what is known as the Communal Award or the MacDonald Communal Award. 
This was largely a unilateral decision by the British government to set aside electoral quotas in India for a long list of social categories, including forward castes, lower castes, Muslims, Buddhists, untouchables, and so on. Rarely, rarely has the British policy of divide and rule been implemented with such naked audacity and ambition. The communal award was designed to undermine Gandhi's position, weaken the Congress, fragment the nationalist movement, appease various factions, and make the British appear as the only level-headed party involved in these discussions. It also ensured that the various factions working within the freedom movement now had an incentive to work with the British. Disagree with the British and you could lose this hard-won McDonald communal quota. Gandhi was devastated, most of all, by the reservations for untouchables. So Gandhi then did what he did best. He went on hunger strike against the untouchable electorate while imprisoned in Yerawada jail in Pune. Remember by this point that Lord Irwin had started arresting Congress leaders again. The British, as you would expect, immediately stepped back and let Gandhi sort things out with Ambedkar. They washed their hands off the problem, hoping, no doubt, that any outcome would be detrimental to the unity of the freedom movement. The Gandhi-Ambedkar discussions culminated in the Pune Pact of September 1932. Under the pact, the untouchables would have reserved seats within the Hindu quota, but all Hindus vote, would vote for all candidates, including the untouchables thus being quite unlike the previous separate untouchable electorate. It was a rare, minor victory for Gandhi. After this, a third and final roundtable conference was held in London between November and December 1932. It was poorly attended and almost completely useless. Three years later, the Government of India Act of 1935 was brought into force. It brought in a whole host of reforms and changes, including officially enshrining the Macdonald Communal Award. Ironically enough, the structure of the 1935 Act owes more to the Simon Commission report than it does to the three roundtable conferences or any of those discussions that so consumed the Indian political scene from November 1930 to December 1932. These had all been, therefore, a gigantic waste of time. A waste of time in which a whole cast of Indian actors performed exactly according to a British script. So in retrospect, what did the roundtable conferences achieve? It did everything the British asked of it. It created deeper rifts between Indian communities and successfully postponed any serious discussion about Indian independence for another decade and a half. What strikes me the most about this story is how Mahatma Gandhi somehow emerged out of it unscathed. The setbacks he suffered throughout those two years would have completely finished the careers of most other politicians. And in fact, the British were counting on this. Numerous intelligence reports told them that following his relentless defeats in the course of the roundtable conferences, Gandhi would quickly fall out of fashion with the masses. But of course, this did not happen, which is both a testimony to Gandhi's political and social acumen and the weakness of British intelligence. Perhaps at a later stage in this podcast, we'll go back and look at how Gandhi managed this and how he coped with the upheavals at home as constitutional reforms seemed to stall all around him. Another thing that strikes you is how the process of figuring out Indian self-government seems oddly detached from the actual freedom struggle afoot in India. It is as if the British saw it all through two prisms, a macro-legislative prism and a micro-law and order prism, as if one was a problem for politicians and leaders and the other a matter for policemen. Next time, I will set aside the entire episode to discuss this Government of India Act of 1935, the last major piece of constitutional reform 
before the Second World War and India's eventual independence. How important was this piece of reform? How was it received in India? And what legacies did it leave us with? All that and more next time. Take care.